This conference will now be recorded. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Hebrews chapter 12. We are in Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. This is not an Easter message or a typical Easter message as uh, some folks might expect. We are not a liturgical church and we do not uh, teach topically or seasonably or we don't base the uh, the messages on the holidays. All right. Here we are, Hebrews. We went to heaven in verses uh, 22 through 24, and now we are looking at the end of the chapter, verses 25 through 29. We've covered a lot already. I'll advance our slideshow to where we've been, and that way we can see where we're going. Haven't we done a lot? So let's just pick up here where we were a week ago. So we were looking at uh, the, the view of heaven in verses 22 through 24, and uh, last week we moved beyond that to verse 25 and 26, talking about the shaking of the earth, how uh, when Mosaic law was given, uh, the earth shook, uh, the mountain shook with great violence, and uh, the Hebrews that were standing at the base of the mountain were terrified. They uh, were happy to stay off the mountain and send Moses up there to uh, to receive the message and come back. That's not the mountain we've come to. We've come to the heavenly Mount Zion. And uh, uh, we've discussed the, the contrast there already in verses 22 through 24. But there is an even greater shaking that's on the way. Not only shaking the earth, but shaking the heavens. And the entire universe is going to shake and explode. Everything will burn. We have a new heavens and a new earth on the way. And that's what the author of Hebrews is taking us to. Really, it's a development from uh, the Old Testament. It's a development from Haggai, the prophet Haggai. And uh, we got a good jump on it last week. I want to get right back to it this week. Before we do, though, let's uh, let's ask our Father for his blessing upon our time of study. Some of this is tough, but thankfully, uh, the Holy Spirit teaches us, and, and he's able to handle it. He can take us through all things, even the deep things of God. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for the blessings of studying to show ourselves approved. We thank you for the church age, Father. Our dispensation is unique. There's nothing like it. Father, we have the spirit-indwelled and spiritually gifted communicator who is being used by you right now to teach the spirit-indwelled hearers. He that has an ear, let him hear what the spirit communicates to the local churches. And Father, we're thankful that as believer priests in Christ, we enter within the veil. We are a Melchizedek priesthood in Christ, standing before you, receiving instruction, presenting ourselves as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the risen Savior. We thank you for the blessings we have to assemble together in the name of Jesus Christ. Open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so 
The end of the chapter is really framed by do not refuse him who is speaking and offer an acceptable service. The fact is we come into this, the Holy of Holies, we enter within the veil, and we're here to do something. We're here to pray, we're here to praise, and we're here to serve. And we have things to offer. Woe be to the priest who shows up empty-handed, <laughs> who uh, walks into the tabernacle and there's nothing to offer. That's not us. We enter into the tabernacle, we enter within the veil, we stand in the Holy of Holies before the Shekinah glory of God himself, and we have much to offer. We have so much to offer. The acceptable service, the fruit of lips that give praise to his name, we're going to see the priesthood expanded in chapter 13, where we're going to find our, our actual offerings are going to be delineated for us, and uh, and it's uh, it's going to be a good study coming up. So when we look at this frame, it's a, it's a framed paragraph from beginning to end, top to bottom, like uh, the top bread and bottom bread on a sandwich. Uh, the top slice of bread is do not refuse him who is speaking in Hebrews 10.25. The bottom slice of bread is offer an acceptable service with reverence, with awe. Our God is a consuming fire. And so just like uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they can stand in the fiery furnace and not be consumed. We stand uh, within the presence of the consuming fire, and we are not consumed, that we stand in his glory, partakers of his glory. What a joy that we have to, to be able to offer the acceptable service, not because we have anything to offer, but because Jesus Christ is acceptable. He, uh, he is well-pleased, and we are in the Son with whom the Father is well-pleased. Israel faced inescapable consequences for defiance of Mosaic law. The church faces much less escapable consequences or much more inescapable consequences. Phrase that however you like, as long as you recognize that our accountability is more severe. Our accountability is much more severe. I'm going to put my Bible back up here again. So we can see these verses that we're looking at in Hebrews 10, 12, I'm sorry, 12, 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Refusal is a rejection. Refusal is a, is a disdain. Refusal is a, is a stealing. It's a fraud. It's, it's withholding when we're supposed to give honor to whom honor is due. It is due him. Our attention is due him. And when he is speaking, he commands our attention. He commands our worship. He commands our allegiance. He commands everything. And so when we refuse him, that is the ultimate blasphemy. It is the ultimate ingratitude. Look at everything he's done for us. How should we refuse him? And in, in how do we think we're going to get away with uh, refusing him? Because the Old Testament saints didn't get away with it. If those did not escape when they refused him, and, and they were refusing an earthly warning, they were refusing from Mount Sinai when, when God descended to Sinai and gave them Ten Commandments and the tablets and, and the whole law. When they refused him, they faced judgment. They faced death. They were stoned. They were put to death. If they did not escape, much less will we escape. Much less will we escape. And so we are much less escapable. Our consequences are severe because our warning is not coming from an earthly mountain. Our warning comes from 
Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, where you and I are as New Testament believer priests. So the accountability is much more severe. And uh, that was our material last week. We move on to verse 26. The earth shook when the Mosaic law was given, but the universe is about to shake. Oh, that a word today. Now, it's at least seven years away. It's at least seven plus a thousand years away. But there is coming a destruction of the heavens and the earth. And since these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought we to be? It's the warning that we have in Second Peter chapter 3. The universe will shake when the unshakable kingdom is manifest. And so we have what would otherwise be perhaps an obscure prophecy. I mean, who pays attention to Haggai? Isn't Haggai a minor prophet? Why are we paying attention to Haggai? And yet, um, minor prophet though he may be, I'm sad that he gets that label, in Haggai chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, and verses 20 through 23, we have this remarkable warning, and Jesus paid attention to it. The author of Hebrews paid attention to it. So, uh, Peter pays attention to it in Second Peter. We all should be paying attention to it because, remember, it's according to his promise. And since, beloved, you look for these things, if you're the beloved that's looking for these things, you're uh, you're paying attention to Haggai. You're paying attention to Hebrews. You're paying attention to the whole counsel of the word of God. And so um, Haggai chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, as for the promise, remember, according to his promise, which I made to you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. Sometimes believers will complain because in Revelation 22, Jesus said, behold, I come quickly. And they say, man, it's been 2000 years. What do you mean I come quickly? Well, in God's standard, it's still just a little while. And Haggai is even earlier than Revelation 22. So you've got to add another, uh, you know, 400 years on the other side of Revelation for the prophet Haggai. So once more in a little while, once and only once. Remember, he promised the rainbow says he's not going to flood this world ever again. But he has also promised he's going to destroy us by fire. He's going to destroy the world and the universe, not just the earth, but the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. That's the millennial earth that has a sea. The new earth doesn't have a sea. When you go down to verses 20 through 23, also in Haggai, whoops, you get to the end of the book. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. So he gave the first message on the 21st day of the month, and then he waits three days to repeat the message and give the message again on the third day. See, here we are. Easter Sunday on the third day that our Savior rose again. So that's my Easter connection. All right, here we go. On the third day, the 24th day of the month, saying, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. It's a great promise to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the very humble king, the son of David, who could not sit on the throne of David. So he governed Jerusalem as a governor. As a governor of the uh, province, a a uh, province of the Persian Empire. And uh, if you think about it, it's a very humble man that's able to do this. You know, you think about today's prime minister, Bibi Netanyahu. He's not seated on the throne of David. He is governing 
the modern nation of Israel, and uh, he's overseeing the Knesset. He is not the son of David on the throne of David, uh, but he is serving as the leader of the Jewish people in the Jewish homeland. Similar circumstance for Zerubbabel, very humble. And uh, unlike Netanyahu, Zerubbabel is a born-again believer. I don't know, I don't believe that, that Bibi is. I want him to become saved. But uh, this is what we're looking at. He's entitled to the throne of David, but he never claims it. He never takes it. It's waiting for the, he's in faith, looking for the coming of the Messiah, coming of Jesus, the greater son of David, who will uh, who will be the king of kings and lord of lords in the millennial kingdom. Zerubbabel will be his signet ring in the millennial kingdom. And that's uh, that's a blessing, too. <clears throat> so speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. I will overthrow the chariots and their riders. The horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. That's the um, tribulation, the great tribulation of Israel. The millennial, <coughs> the millennial kingdom comes as a result of military victory at Armageddon. And then he's going to reign for a thousand years. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord. And I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And so here's another glimpse of what we have. See, when uh, <coughs> when these Old Testament believers are resurrected, several of them might be wondering, what do we do now? You know, David, resurrected David, what does he do? He can't be king again because Jesus is the king. And we learn in, in Ezekiel that they're actually going to co-reign, that Jesus will be the king and David will be the prince. And he'll be the uh, the crown prince. He'll be the, the, uh, the number one prince because he's the first of all the Davidic kings. I believe all of the resurrected Davidic kings will have a function. And this verse speaks of Zerubbabel's function. <laughs> Zerubbabel never got to sit on the throne of David but he will be the signet ring in the millennial kingdom when Jesus issues a decree in the millennium it's going to be Zerubbabel who comes and applies the signet ring to uh, to enact the uh, the law that Jesus utters I believe all of the line even Joseph the adopted father of Jesus is in that line like Jer- like Zerubbabel Never sat on David's throne, but he was in that line between David and Jesus. So Joseph, the father, the adopted father of the humanity of our Savior, he will have a uh, resurrected ministry in the millennium, along with all the other Davidic uh, line. So this is what we're looking forward to. We have promises. The Gentiles are thrown down. Their nations will be overthrown. Victory is given to the Jewish people. A kingdom of peace will arise with Zerubbabel and the signet ring. But what starts this all off is the shaking of the heavens and the earth. And uh, much of that happens in the tribulation when the stars, moon, and sun are made dark and they fall and the powers of the heaven are shaken and so forth. But the greatest shaking happens when everything is consumed by fire. And that's what happens when the... uh, Every uh, the, the entire universe is consumed. So understand your timeline. The millennium follows the tribulation. 
and together they constitute the day of the Lord on this earth. If you want more on that, we'll be doing a, an eschatology class at four o'clock. Uh, Norm Geisler, and we're in the chapter that's going to talk about the, um, we're going to talk about these things. So the millennium follows the tribulation and together they constitute the day of the Lord on this earth. And, uh, that's important to keep in mind. By the time we get to the new earth, the day of the Lord is over. Okay. We have uh, what's called the day of God. We have the eternal day. We have the glories of the, of the thousand generations in the new heavens and on the new earth. But the millennium, so we have the church age. After the rapture, we have the tribulation. After the second advent, we have the millennium. And it's the tribulation and millennium together that become, that, that are titled the day of the Lord. And they both happen on this earth. But you and I, we're not looking forward to the tribulation. We're not looking forward to the millennium. We're looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're not looking for the millennium. So hopefully we uh, we have a frame of reference and a context for that as well. Verses 27, 28, and 29. We'll see how far we get through this today. Verses 27, 28, and 29. Let me get my Bible back up here. Let's read them. Hebrews 12, 27. So this expression, yet once more. Notice what the author of Hebrews is doing here. Because in verse 26... He said, his voice shook the earth then, talking about the law of Moses in the Mount Sinai episode. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And so the author of Hebrews says, this expression, yet once more, denotes something. It's significant. He's zooming in on the, on the term, yet once more. Okay? The author of Hebrews is making a big deal out of a phrase, out of a uh, a, a particle, part of a phrase. <laughs> and part of a phrase from a chapter from a minor prophet in the Old Testament. <laughs> he's making a big deal out of the yet once more. And I like that because this is why, uh, I mean, this is the this is the foundation for our tradition for our teaching tradition for our style of ministry for our the the teaching to which we are committed that we have a literal hermeneutic that we study line upon line precept upon precept a little here a little there that it's that it's uh, the whole counsel of the word of god that it's every jot and tittle that even the the portions of a word the jots and tittles are inspired by god and so we do pay attention. And this is what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's zooming in on the yet once more. And he's making sure that his readers don't miss this. And his readers are, as we've taught many times, they, they have a, a strong Old Testament background. They're most likely they're, they're Levitical priests, former Levitical priests that, uh, that named the name of Christ and became New Testament believers. And so they've got a foundation. And uh, when he's when he's giving them this uh, this message from Haggai, he's spotlighting something here. He says, yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken. 
the removing of those things which can be shaken. He's trying to get them to not only contrast the two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount and in heavenly Mount Zion, it's it's a contrast of of those two mountains, but bigger than that, the fact that that first mountain can be shaken tells you something. <laughs> that the original Mount Sinai, when they were all standing there and Moses had climbed up there, that that was it was a mountain that shook, which means it's a mountain that can be shook, okay? Can be shooken, can be shaken. All right, it's a mountain that can be shaken. And a shakable mountain has problems. A shakable mountain is a part of a shakable world, is a part of a shakable universe, is a part of a um it's part of a temporary arrangement that was never designed to be forever. And that's what he's saying here. It denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things that is created under the first creation created in the six days created and uh, when god looked on the seventh day about all and there was nothing wrong with what he did he looked at what he did and it was very good he was well pleased he was well pleased with everything he created knowing that it was not designed to be eternal it was it had a designed obsolescence as a part of its uh, of its engineering as a part of its blueprint. And so the father was not defective in the blueprints that he drew up. And the son was not defective in the uh, the building of, of what he built. That by design and as built, this uh, physical universe, the, the time frame, whatever you want to call it, the, uh, the uh, yeah, the time, fr- uh, whatever that is, the continuum there, the physical material universe of, of time and space was always intended to be temporary. The the laws of thermodynamics were built in, shakeable, from the uh, the universe to the galaxies to the solar systems. This is why we see shooting stars. This is why we see uh, uh, stars that burn out. This is why we see uh, the the decay that we see, because this universe was never intended to be eternal. This is why we see. Uh, aging. This is why we see hunger. This is why we see uh, things grow old in uh, this material universe. So, the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Once you take away everything that can be shaken, once you consume everything that can be consumed, the things that can decay, the perishable. Remember, the perishable must put on the imperishable. We're going to sh- show you all these verses here in a moment. Because the body that goes into the grave is perishable. The body that comes out is imperishable, unshakable. The things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, that is so profound because, again, the, the church age believer priesthood in Christ is unshakable. Our priesthood is unshakable. The new creation which we are in Christ is unshakable. And we're not waiting for it to come someday. We already receive it now. We already receive it now. 
All right. I'm just reading the verses. I'll get the point on the screen here in a moment. <clears throat> we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And we receive it now. When we receive Christ, we receive this kingdom. We receive this priesthood. We receive this unshakable creation. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. And so let us show gratitude. Again, that showing gratitude. This is the bottom slice of bread. Uh, we have the uh, top slice, do not refuse, the bottom slice. Offering to God an acceptable service, we do that as we show gratitude. For our God is a consuming fire. Okay, so here's our verses. This is what wraps up the chapter. This is what uh, we're going to be dealing with here on these slides. <clears throat> the author of Hebrews keys in on Haggai's expression yet once more to spotlight a coming cataclysmic cosmic change. <laughs> it is a coming cataclysmic cosmic change. And this this should grab our attention. This ought to be our focus. I know uh, there's a lot of unbelievers and, and carnal believers and mistaught sad believers that are all wrapped up over global warming. They're all uh, uh, just, you know, consumed over uh, global warming or climate change or whatever they're going to call it next. And and that's not our issue. We don't sweat that at all. It doesn't bother us a bit. The issue is the destruction of the heavens and the earth, the removal of the things that can be shaken. That's what our attention is to be fixed on. And this is what the author of Hebrews is spotlighting. A coming cataclysmic comic, a cosmic change, not just the uh, the cons uh, the burning of everything, every molecule on this planet, but every molecule in the uh, in the universe, every molecule on every planet, in every galaxy, uh, in every in the full expanse of the uh, the material universe. It's all being consumed. The very spiritual and material fabrics of reality will be made new. Spiritual and material fabrics of reality will be made new. And just consider that, that we have the material fabric of reality. We also have the spiritual fabric of reality. As the angels function in the heavenly realm, the angels populate the heavenly dimension. The heavens and the earth are going to be consumed. And is this only the uh, the material universe, or is it the angelic spiritual realm as well that has to be made new? Well, I believe it's everything. Everything is everything except God Himself in His own uh, in His own existence. So the very spiritual and material fabrics of reality will be made new. God is the only unshakable being until He creates other unshakable beings, such as you and I, in Christ. So. Let's remind ourselves what these verses are talking about. That way I'm not blocking any of the words. Second Peter 3.10. I don't usually recite this at the beginning of Bible class, but uh, here we have it. 
the day of these are the verses that lead up to according to his promise. Verse 10 says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That's the rhetorical question. This is the kind of God who wreaks this kind of destruction upon the universe. Since we serve a God like that, what kind of people ought we to be? What is our mandate for holiness? And uh, I think uh, Peter, uh, Peter probably, I don't know if Peter had access to Hebrews or not. Likely he did before he died. He had uh, access to read the text of Hebrews, possibly. We know he read Paul's writings and uh, perhaps he also read uh, Hebrews as well before he died, before he wrote Second Peter. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. Or as the author of Hebrews puts it, our God is a consuming fire. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Knowing the God we serve, what kind of priests ought we to be as we enter within the veil and stand before his glory? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Not the day of the Lord. That's the day of his wrath. That's the tribulation and the millennium. By the coming day of God, this is the eternal day of the thousand generations on the new heavens and the new earth, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. You know, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The things which can be shaken cannot cross into the unshakable new heavens and new earth. But the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. You know that periodic table of the elements that uh, you have listed from, you know, one to whatever, and uh, you list your uh, your uh, your elements. All of that's done. All of that's over. None of that will exist again. Uh, not uh, not in this way, because all of that is being consumed. Every molecule, every subatomic particle is going to be converted from from matter to energy. It's all going to be consumed, melting with intense heat is the way Peter describes it here. And then we're going to find that heaven and earth flee away, is the expression there. Isaiah 24, verses 21 through 23. Whoops. Typed it wrong. Isaiah 24, 21. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high. So you see, in the angelic dimension, in the, I believe, the spiritual fabric of reality is affected just as much as the material fabric of reality. So what will happen in that day? And I'm trying to find a way to illustrate this. It's like you have fabric laid layered within other fabric, right? And some of you that are seamstresses or, or Sharon could probably help me out, bail me out on this. You've got fabric and other fabric, and they're layered. So imagine the material fabric of reality that you and I live in and the spiritual fabric of reality that's laid on top of that. And you have the intersection of the angelic with the human. Anyway, it all gets burned up. It's all consumed. The very spiritual and material fabrics of reality. And here's how Isaiah put it. Isaiah 24, 21 through 23. 
So will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. That's a good place to keep your kings of the earth. Keep them on the earth. All right. They will be gathered together. See, the tribulation is both a human and an angelic war. They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon. They will be confined in prison. And after many days, they will be punished. So the conquest at Armageddon is when the enemies are gathered. And then after the millennium is when they will be punished. That's when the great white throne will be convened. Then the moon will be abashed, the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before his elders. See, we're going to have new heavens and a new earth. And they won't need the light of the sun or the light of the moon because the Lamb himself will dwell there. And the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that descends. Pay attention to some of these things. His glory will be before his elders. Of course, Isaiah doesn't know about the body of Christ. Isaiah doesn't know any mystery doctrine that you and I know. Isaiah doesn't know. You would uh, speculate, I imagine, on these elders. We have the perspective to understand it. In fact, the Apostle John saw the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. So when this command is given, the presence of God the Son himself, God, Jesus has already been on this earth, for a thousand years. He's already been seated on David's throne for a thousand years. He's been reigning. And uh, each generation that's come over those thousand years, however many that, that ends up being, uh, for all the generations that uh, that come for those thousand years, there is a growing rebellion. And by the end of it, they demand Satan's release from the abyss. They demand, I believe, Jesus' abdication from the throne. Because they're surrounding Jerusalem. The Gog Magog Rebellion is surrounding Jerusalem. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes it. This is how the millennium ends. That's uh, the verses ahead of this. Verses 8, 9, and 10. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and of the beloved city. These are the Jewish saints, by the way. Israel remains the faithful nation at the end of the millennium. The camp of the saints and of the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Remember, he who sits in the heavens laughs and he sends the fire to consume the Gog Magog rebellion. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's eternal conscious torment. There is no annihilationalism. The beast and the false prophet have been there for the last thousand years, and they're still there at the point when Satan arrives. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. 
So in the destruction of the, in the shaking of the universe, in the consumption of the spiritual material fabrics of reality, everything is consumed. Everything is gone. Everything is gone and it's fleeing away from the presence of Jesus Christ. And he is now seated on a great white throne. And, uh, and this is what we're looking at. All right. Now, how do the believers cross over? How do the, uh, the living saints, uh, how do they survive this? How do they cross over from the old earth to the new earth? What's their translation like? Well, this verse doesn't tell us. So we kind of model it in different ways and we discuss different possibilities. But that's the description. Heaven and earth fled away and no place was found for them. So there's nowhere. There's just Jesus on the great white throne. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were open. Another book was open. They're not standing on the earth because the earth is gone. This is in between the destruction of the earth and the creation of the new earth. The destruction of the heavens and the creation of the new heavens. There is literally nothing beyond God, beyond the uh, Jesus on his throne here and, and us with him. Remember, thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so the dead have to stand before the great white throne and these books are opened. All right. Then we get to Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. They shall be his people. God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, remember, this is Jesus on the great white throne. Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. He said to me, it is done. I'm going to go past verse five and get through verse seven. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. This is when Jesus Christ takes on the role of the father for those thousand generations on the new earth. All things are made new. This is what we're looking forward to. And the reason why we are best equipped to look forward to this is because we already are a part of that new creation. Second Corinthians 5 verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. See, the things that can be shaken are going away. The new things that cannot be shaken are on the way. And some of those new things are already here. That's you and me in our position in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. And he does not make our new create, uh, creation, he does not make our new nature in Christ shakable. Our new nature in Christ is unshakable. This is why you can't lose it. This is why we are eternally secure. It's, uh, it's an, I think it's, a, it's an even greater reinforcement upon eternal security is the recognition of our new creation in Christ. It is unshakable. 
The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. Understand that presently created things are shakable. Presently created things are shakable. Subject to corruption. That's what shakable is all about. Subject to corruption. The new creation is unshakable. Not subject to corruption. The new heavens and the new earth will operate with new laws of thermodynamics. First law, second law, third law, however many. They're all, I don't know, the laws of thermodynamics. Maybe we'll have, uh, we'll have 12 in the new creation. I don't know. The new laws will be all new because everything is made new. And, uh, whoever, uh, memorized the list of, uh, laws on this earth, the, the present day physicists are going to be out of work. When, uh, when the new physics come along and, uh, in the new heavens and on the new earth. First Corinthians 15. I've already referenced it. You know what I'm talking about? The body that goes into the grave, the body that comes out of the grave. Here's another Easter tie in for you. Cause the body that, uh, Joseph of Arimathea laid into the tomb was considerably different from the body that Jesus walked out of the tomb with on Resurrection Sunday. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42, So is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. That's shakable, perishable. It is raised an imperishable body. That is subject to corruption, not subject to corruption. Uh, not able to be corrupted. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. These bodies are, are corruptible. They're weak. They grow hungry. They must be fed. They are constantly decaying. If we don't eat, if we don't drink this dying body with which we, we walk around in, it, uh, it expires. It is a perishable thing. And uh, not so in the new physics of the new creation. Sown in weakness, raised in power. It is sown a soulish body, natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So we have the the uh, physical and the spiritual, the psuchikos and the pneumatikos. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Let me get down to uh, 52 and following because we have the first atom, the second atom. All of this is so critical that we get this. And by the way, if there was no first atom, this is why we can't compromise with the evolutionary crowd. If, uh, if it's, if it's good to you by way of the zoo and there was no literal atom created in the image of God as the first atom, well then we can't be saved by the second atom. And the whole theology of our redemption is, uh, is, uh, predicated upon the first atom and the second atom. And uh, sadly, when uh, liberal Christianity tries to create a theistic evolution, what they're uh, creating is a uh, atheistic, satanic compromise with this fallen world. God says the wisdom of this world is foolishness. And I hope we're clear on that. So the first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. We have this to look forward to in the resurrection. 
Now I say this, brethren, the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This is why Isaiah put it that way. And this is why all the prophets, this is why Haggai said, the things that are shakable, they got to go away. we got to replace it with what's unshakable, the unshakable kingdom. Because flesh and blood, anything shakable cannot inherit the unshakable. I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, we will all be changed. In the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For perishable must put on imperishable, mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? We sing in that song for a thousand generations in the new heavens and on the new earth. All right, well, we still have verses 28 and 29. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, we have this kingdom now. We receive it already. It's not here yet, but we've been rescued from the domain of darkness. And we've been transferred to the kingdom authority of his beloved son. This was uh, not long ago in Colossians chapter 1. We observed this, that we uh, are no longer under the domain of darkness. Even though we still live in a fallen world, we still function in fallen bodies in a fallen world. We are judicially remanded from that authority. We're no longer under the, the domain of darkness. We're presently under the kingdom authority of a kingdom that's not here yet. But the new creation is here because we're in Christ and we're in that new creation as the new creation. And so next week we're going to look at, we'll we'll finish the chapter next week when we see what the present reality is for us in uh, worshiping, in our priestly function, in our ambassadorial function, in our soldier function. How do we live? We're behind enemy lines. We're the we're the new creation kingdom uh, uh, inhabitants for a kingdom that's not here yet. And so how do we serve in gratitude? How do we offer to God the priestly service in reverence and awe? How do we survive the consuming fire? And uh, we'll, uh, we'll discuss this too. Again, I, I'm, I'm glad that, that uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came up earlier because we're going to be uh, kind of – Viewing that as a model, I think it's a better model than the Noah's Ark model for how do we survive the flood? How do we survive the fire? Noah and his family survived the flood with an ark. Uh, Clarence Larkin thought that uh, the millennial uh, survivors would survive the fire with the uh, by being inside the New Jerusalem, that they would be translated, they'd be um, uh, transferred to the New Jerusalem so that after the fire was finished, and the new heavens and new earth uh, were created, then they could descend in the new Jerusalem without sin, without death, in their uh, in their in their uh, sinless bodies. Perhaps that's the model, but perhaps Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego are the better model, because being in the presence of the of the Lord, being in the presence of the fourth man in the fire, the uh, the fire didn't touch them, and uh, and that may be the uh, the better model for us to uh, to consider. All right. Well, like I say, this is going to be next week. This is Communion Sunday, being Easter Sunday. 
And so I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer, and then we will uh, stop the recording, and then we will reactivate your cameras so that as we go to the communion table together, we can uh, we can all be on camera to do that. So, Father, I thank you for this chapter. I thank you for this uh, principle that there is a shaking on the way, the destruction of the new heavens and the new earth. There is a sequence of events in proper sequential order. And, Father, it is a blessing for us to study these things and to see how they unfold, to be aware of them and to be affected by them. Father, this doctrine is supposed to shape our diligence. What sort of people ought we to be? Our God is a consuming fire. We stand in the midst of that fire as we stand before you and your glory. Father, anyone in the Old Testament that that appeared before your glory died on the spot. Anyone in the Old Testament that touched the uh, Ark of the Covenant died on the spot. Father, we enter within the veil. We stand before the Ark. We, uh, we behold your glory. And we don't die. We are marvelously uh, preserved. And yet the, the, the nature of that consuming fire should be such that we are impelled to reverence and awe. We are impelled to be the sort of people, the sort of priests, the sort of soldiers, the sort of ambassadors, the sort of people that stand within your presence day by day and moment by moment. Might this teaching be motivational. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.